in actually in management, not in computer science. Mm -hmm. And um, but they didn't buy the idea, and neither did the AI people, mm -hmm. like Tim Nielsen. They were working on rule-based systems, expert system was very fashionable at that time. Just came out, and everybody was working on a way to improve the interactions among the rules. In the late seventies, early eighties, everybody was working on expert system for all kind of application, from medicine to mineral explorations. Whenever you have, you pay an, whenever you pay a professional, the idea was you can replace the professional mm -hmm. by interviewing the professional, extracting from him or her <coughs> the rules by which he or she operates. We have a computer, the bunch of rules. We have an engine, tells the rules, <coughs> fire. We used to say fire the rules. And uh, you get an inference system that tells you where to dig for oil and where to what uh, medical test to conduct next. Well, it didn't quite work out because of many reasons. I was primarily actually I think the time of the expert was one of the main uh, obstacles. Mm -hmm. We would sit there for two weeks and tell a computer programmer. Okay, how he or she uh, conducting his everyday business or professional. And also the rule-based system was, scientifically speaking, was on the wrong track. They muddled the expert instead of muddling the disease. <laughs> and the problems were Rules um, that were created by the programmers did not combine properly. Mm -hmm. You have many, many. When you had more rules, you have to undo the old ones. But it was a very brittle system. And when there was a change in procedure in the hospital, right? You have to rewrite the whole uh, rules system. Not only one rule. Because they're all interacting in, in a way that the professional, in this case the doctor, did not understand. Because once you put a hundred rules, you forgot the first and five and seven. Yeah. Anyhow, it didn't uh, quite, I mean, I, I didn't like it because it wasn't scientifically transparent. And I'm lazy. I won't understand what I'm doing. And I, I'm, <laughs> I want to. Understanding mathematically, it wasn't mathematically solid, so you can prove things. Like if you do things right, you guarantee a certain performance. Right? I like this elegance that you find in mathematics. Mm -hmm. If you make a certain assumption, you guarantee a certain performance. That's a, something very elegant, pleasing. I couldn't find it in a rule-based system. Okay. Uh, the impact came in the early eighties when. Uh, we changed from rule-based systems to um, Bayesian network. Yeah, Bayesian networks are probabilistic reasoning system. And the, an expert, again an expert, will put in the 
his or her perception of the domain. The domain can be a disease, can be oil exploration, same target as we had for expert systems. That the idea was to model the domain, what the rules apply there in the disease. So you put in probabilistic, local probabilistic chunks of knowledge. And then the computer will combine them and spread them and um, <clears throat> allow you to find out the posterior probability, namely the revised probability, given that you have no evidence. It was an, en an engine for evidence. You put some probabilistic uh, <clears throat> rules, comes no evidence, and the system just shuffles things around and gives you your revised belief in, in all the right belief, in all the propositions, revised by virtue of the new evidence. That's a matter of getting the speed. The problem was to get the, the compactness and to get the speed. These were two major obstacles. Theoretically, you, have, you need to have exponentially hard, uh, exponentially, exponential time and exponential memory. And that couldn't be afforded. But we took advantage of the fact that we understand what is relevant and what is not relevant. We have no sparse network. And if you have a sparse network, you can utilize the sparseness and get speed and compactness. But all it lives in, in a Bayesian network. It's a speedy way of computing your revised belief after you told me your initial belief. And that apparently took off because uh, it needed that. And it has all the nice properties of probability calculus. It wasn't ad hoc. So it was transparent. And the main thing that got it popular and useful was reconfigurability, which means if you model diagnosis on a car and they change engine, you don't have to rewrite the whole system, you just change one component which is responsible for modeling the engine, all the rest remains intact, it was modular, and they use it. So reconfigurability and transparability were the main selling points of Bayesian networks. What I brought to that, number one, <clears throat> religious fanaticism. To do things correctly, namely to do things by the dictates of probability calculus, and to the, the computational scheme of uh, Asynchronous computation, distributed computation. If you have a collection of simple, stupid modules, like in a neural network, each one works autonomously and communicate only with its neighbors, comes evidence, it start propagating its evidence to the neighbors, the neighbors wake up, start propagating it to their neighbors, and eventually the system relaxes 
to the correct belief. What do we mean by correct belief? Belief that you would compute if you had the time to spend on doing things correctly by the dictates of probability calculus. That's what I brought in. Nothing more. Is there an alternate truth? I left it when it was in embryonic state because I was interested in causality. So I left this area and many people have found it to be very useful. Some people tell me that um, Google and Siri and all these uh, nice applications are using ideas or the, the, the algorithms that were developed at that time. I'm very happy. I don't know what they are doing. Partly because they are very secretive, and <laughs> partly because I, really, I went to different um, uh, pastures. I'm talking about a different kind of transparency. I mean, the, the user will know at every point what is going wrong if something goes wrong. And he can re-look at the system and spot where the fault is, and uh, it's when it's not working well, and it's when it's working well, it gives him, gives him or, her, or her a meaningful results. Mm -hmm. One can relate to experience, one can relate to the, uh, um, the perception of the phenomena. Mm -hmm. Human perception of the phenomena. Okay. I think we are losing it now with the deep learning. Okay. We, we are losing transparency. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I'm talking to users and they say it works well, but we don't know why. You unleash it. It has its own dynamics. It has its own repair and its own uh, optimization. And it gives you the right result most of the time. And when it doesn't, you don't really know where the f what went wrong and what should be uh, fixed. And that's something which worries me, the direction it goes. We do not understand the human anatomy and the human neural architecture. We let it run, and it runs well, and mm -hmm. we forgive our not understanding, a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. In that way, you can say you unleash the deep learning systems and let them create intelligence without your understanding how they do it. It's fine. Mm -hmm. it's I personally don't like this kind of non-transparency, so I will spend my time on that. Yeah. Uh, it, it has a place. Mm -hmm. so, deep learning. Mm -hmm. The non-transparent system can do a marvelous job, mm -hmm. and uh, we are uh, existence proof of that marvelous job. Mm -hmm. I, I, I am theoretically trying to understand the limitation of such systems. It's from the mathematical, from the outside viewpoint, there are limitations that we discovered that I don't think and that exist there. And unless they are being broken, you wouldn't get a real human kind of intelligence from system, no matter what they do. Mm -hmm. This is my current uh, interest. I, I see people like the Michael Jordan, you know. Um, Jeff Hinton, and they're creating good things. They have good vision systems. They recognize objects. They recognize the text. It's very impressive. The question that I have, how far can it go? What are the theoretical limitations? And how can we overcome them? 
and I think the work we are doing now on causality highlights, bring to the table some of the basic uh, limitations needs to over overcome. And one of them is uh, thinking of free will, thinking counterfactually, thinking causally, and you wouldn't, you cannot, it, theoretically, you cannot count, get from statistical data any uh, conclusions about cause and effect relationship, or, and definitely not about counterfactual. Counterfactual, I mean, I should have done things better. And if you don't have that, you lose a lot of human communication. That's how we teach our children, right? Slap on the wrist, you shouldn't have spilled your milk, you should have done your homework. What does that mean? You should have done and going back in history and relive your experience and modify your behavior. That's how we communicate. You and I with the children, and if we lose that, we lose the ability to form communities of, of communicating robots. And this is something that uh, excites me. First of all, you know that I was a physicist. I worked on devices. And I got into decision theory because I was interested in cybernetics. We all were absolutely sure that one day we're going to make create intelligence. The question was only how, and I thought that decision theory is a way to get there. So I studied the papers by uh, Rafer. He just died uh, in a few weeks ago, two weeks ago. Howard Rafer and um, Savage and the Bayesian statistics and Ron Howard and Kahneman and Tversky, because they were starting to publish their about the heuristics. So, Tversky and Kahneman were big players at the time, and they came up with these heuristics, which I thought should be emulated, not overridden. Being an AI, the heuristic plays an important computational role. We should capture it and emulate it. And uh, but what else? We, that's what brings us together, decision-making. Tversky and Kahneman uh, paradox or bias, bias. What is more likely? That a daughter will have blue eyes given that the mother has blue eyes or the other way around? That the mother has blue eyes given that the daughter has blue eyes? Most people would say the former. So you go by the causal direction. If you're not a mother, you have a hereditary. It's more likely the daughter would have blue eyes. The parents are the same. But the number of blue-eyed people in every generation remains stable. So this is an evidence to the fact that people think causally. They are biased by causal connections, and not probabilistically. Because if you were to go by what probability dictates, probability will tell you it's the same. There are many biases in our judgment that are created by our inclination to attribute causal relationship where they do not belong, or 
where we want them to be, we just think that we see the world as a collection of causal relationships and not as a collection of statistical or associate, associative relationships. Most of the time we, we can get by because they're closely tied together. But once in a while we fail. Like this was a case where our judgment fails. In other cases, for instance, uh, Exam famous examples, you know, that the, the slogan correlation doesn't imply causation. Mm -hmm. to many paradoxes, like for instance, you know, that um, children's uh, size of the thumb is highly correlated with their reading ability. So, if you want to, to grow a larger thumb, if you want to be taller, you should learn to read better. That's the kind of, the kind of example for to um, uh, people use to prove, to convince each other that correlation does not imply causation. But people fall into that quite often. Mm -hmm. And once you get into the idea that people do that, it means that our mind is a causal processor and not association processor, then you ask the question, how do we organize it? What are the, how, how do we view things causally and how we operate in, in such a mental representation? Mm -hmm. Then the whole area of causality opens up. There are many questions that were not addressed by psychologists, computer scientists, statisticians, up, up. Then you have to organize. Yeah. That's what I'm doing now. So what about the raging debates about free will, you know, which are going on amongst philosophers? Yes, yes. I think they are... It's a very nice debate, but I'm not interested in that. Okay? Because I want to build machines that act like as if they had a free will. And they will imagine that I have a free will and communicate with me as if we have free will. And that is a question, it's an engineering question. So all this philosophy about determinism and, and mind-body duality and all this are irrelevant. Tell me, uh, we, the question that we should ask is, what gives us the illusion, algorithmically, that we have free will? It is an undeniable fact that I have a sensation that if I wish I can touch my nose and if I don't, I don't. You have the same sensation. And when we talk about sensation, it's undeniable fact, it exists. Okay. The question that we should ask is, what in the collection of algorithms that resides here, we get this illusion? that we have the option. That is a question, an engineering question. Give me a software that will explain when I do have the sensation and when I don't have sensation. And then the question is, why did evolution equip us, equip us with that illusion? What is the computational advantage of me believing that you have free will and you believing that I have free will? Forget about 
whether we do have free will. We have here computational phenomena. It must serve some evolutionary function, survival function, and computational function. If we didn't have computational function, then it wouldn't be evolved. This is what I'm trying to capture. What computational advantage it bestows upon us, and even if it is illusion, and many evidence, there are evidence to the fact that it, free will is an illusion. Because some people they found that people get to the uh, make a decision, make up their mind, neurally speaking, before they get the sensation that they actually made a decision. Okay. Um, it doesn't concern me the point. I want to find out what computational modules took place in that illusion. That is what interests me because I want to implement it on a machine so that a community of robots will be able to play better soccer. I'm still interested about the pragmatics, the computational pragmatics of the phenomena as opposed to justification or its philosophical grounding. You and I believe strongly that a robot is a deterministic machine. So all this philosophy about Heisenberg principles and about men, you know, um, mind-body doesn't enter into that picture. A machine is a body, it's not mind. Now is the question, take this body, which is undeniably deterministic, and equip it with something that normally is attributed only to uh, organic thinking machines, right? human beings. Right? It's an engineering problem. And I want to understand it so that I can build it. And why I want to build it? Because it has computational advantage. For instance, the compactness of our communication language. When a coach tells a player you're going to sit down on, on a bench and not play because you should have passed the ball mm-hmm. and you didn't, but you're going to be punished in some way. Okay? What? Why does he talk like that? Mm-hmm. You should. You should. You ought to have known better. What does it mean? If he assume free will, assume counterfactual thinking. And use that as a communication language to speed up the transfer of information from his experience to you. That is the, the key. What advantage, computational advantage, we get by this assumption that you and I have free will. This, to me, is the most uh, exciting problem so to understand. Because then we can have robots. Simulating free will, never mind the philosophical question whether they do have. Obviously, they were programmed by someone and they follow their programming rules. At the same time, they communicate the way we do. And then we increase the communication channel between man and machine. We are living in the midst of a revolution, which is not uh, recognized in any of the writings in the New York Times, in science writing, or anywhere else. It's not as heralded as the revolution we notice in the 
Hey, hi, for instance. So there are many new devices coming out, but it is a, it's a um, conceptual revolution, which has a lot of ramification to the way scientists see their um, role and the way the most many scientists are beginning to uh, conduct their thinking. And this is a causal revolution. Namely, questions that only two decades ago were considered to be metaphysical are formulated mathematically and are being used and are being answered statistically. And so it is a revolution in the way scientists conduct science. I'm talking about the causal revolution. But the same scientists don't recognize it? It's not explicit. Mm -hmm. No. It, it is mainly in the research circles, mm -hmm. the way the scientists find cause and effect, both in experiments and in observational studies. The way we think about it, the way we think about our ability to discover cause and effect, mm -hmm. it's changing. Simply by the language and by what we believe is feasible, and the kind of questions we ask. If I, if I give you a simple question like, uh, "Was it the aspirin that I took, which um, caused my headache to go to go away?" A question like that about uh, uh, what was the real cause of things was considered to be metaphysical not part of science. And today, we can estimate it from data and tell you what's the probability that it was aspirin. That is a revolution. What was achieved in the past two or three decades in causal thinking has not been done in the entire human history. And it's not my quote, it's a quote of uh, with Gary King, it's, it will eventually come to the surface with ordinary people who will feel the difference. And it eventually will come to education. But the, this excitement occurs mainly in um, research circles mm -hmm. and it hasn't penetrated yet to education. I spent a lot of time on education, on the gap between the um, thinking of the, of the research community mm -hmm. and the textbook community. Mm -hmm. The gap is enormous. And to give you an example, if you take any textbooks in statistics, you wouldn't find the word cause and effect in the index. Mm -hmm. It doesn't appear there. This is not the case now in the research circles. Mm -hmm. If you go to any statistical conference, you find the word cause in at least uh, 100 or 200 papers mm -hmm. competing for respectability by virtue of the word cause, which means it flipped itself from being a liability to being an asset, mm -hmm. a source of uh, respectability. Mm -hmm. And it's zero in education. 